Hey, everybody, and thank you very much for coming back and joining us here on BizBooks. My name is Gene Marks, and as you know by now, this is the uh, podcast, James, right, or uh, YouTube channel. Uh, we're trying to figure out what to call this. It's really a series of interviews with uh, great authors of great business books uh, that we can all learn from. And, and I, am, I am honored and happy to have today my guest, James White. He is the author of Anti-Racist Leadership, How to Transform Corporate Culture in a Race Conscious World. So, James, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me. I'm really glad that you're here. Gene, thanks for having me on the platform. Love the work that you do and uh, looking forward to our conversation. I like that, the platform. That's what we should start calling it. It's just that we'll just say it's the platform and that will that will work out well. Well, good. So, James, so let's dig in. I you know, bought the book, read the book, love the book. Um, first of all, let's find out a little about, about you and also about your daughter, Krista. Uh, sure. So tell us a little bit of background of yourself and how you came to be writing this book. Uh, Jim, my background, um, I uh, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, working class family, you know, part of my personal biography. I'm first member of my family to graduate from college, which is a really important through line for me. I'm obviously uh, a relatively accomplished black executive. I've been a public company CEO. I ran Jamba Juice for a number of uh, years as CEO, uh, work with Fortune 500 companies. So I've seen a number of places from the Coca-Cola company to Nestle Purina to Safeway stores in executive uh, roles across those companies. I've sat in the boardroom, um, so as we thought about this book project, we thought there would be a unique perspective that is not in the marketplace around the topic of anti-racist leadership and DEI that was from the perspective uh, of a black executive uh, who's been a public company CEO, who sits in public and private company boards, you know, so from policy to the front line of sure. businesses and really knows what the operational leverage levers are to really making sustainable change in this space. Um, the force multiplier in the project was uh, me being able to team up with uh, my millennial daughter, uh, Krista, who's a Columbia University alum. She's a startup founder in her own uh, right. She's a brilliant writer and analyst. So her millennial perspective is feathered throughout the book, which I think is important for leaders because, you know, for many of us, our consumer bases are going to be millennial and Gen Z. Many of our workforces are going to be millennial and Gen Z. And we thought that would be uh, uh, an appropriate way to uh, really go at this uh, really important topic and bring to life a, a playbook of sorts with uh, rich answers and lots of examples. Yeah, it's funny you talk about millennials. So I have three kids, they're all in their late 20s. Um, yeah, you know, the millennial generation, you know, people malign the generation. And yet my personal experiences from the people that I meet, they're friends, they're hardworking. Um, it's a nicer generation than our generation, I just want to say, you know. Sure. Uh, they're more aware of the world around them. They are more diverse and they're more respectful, uh, which gives me hope for the future. Uh, but it's, you know, having her perspective to help you, I mean, what was her involvement in, in helping you write this book? Uh, she would have been my partner throughout. And Gene, one of the ways that I start when I do many of these discussions is that I read the very first paragraph 
of the book and then I share sure. the uh the the backstory and I think that'll be an important uh, uh yeah context for uh the, your audience on this platform sure. so I'll, I'll start this is the first paragraph of the book and I'll share a bit of the backstory which I think will, will also be uh instructive okay. this book is not apolitical this book is explicitly mm -hmm. anti-racist pro-black pro-lgbtqia and feminist this book takes the stance that Black Lives Matter, that LGBTQIA plus rights or human rights, that people of all abilities deserve respect and access, and that people of all genders have the right to sovereignty over their bodies and identities. This book acknowledges that capitalism is built on a foundation of systemic racism, and that to have a truly diverse, equitable, and inclusive work environment, we must acknowledge the historic and present injustices faced by marginalized people. Uh, so that paragraph in total uh, was written in uh, late May, early June of 2020. Mm -hmm. Krista comes to me. We've got a, a you know a planning session with the team that uh, was helping us edit and shape. And she says, Dad, I've got a different way to start our book. So she Thank shares you. it with me. Um, you know, I take a little pause. I think about it overnight. I don't commit to, hey, that's the path we go down. Uh, but I was so uh, compelled by the forcefulness of her voice and the clarity of this paragraph as a thesis for really the entirety of our book. I read it to uh, the team that was on the call the next day and one of the members of the team says, James, you're a mainstream business person. Do you care if you ever work again? <laughs> and I said, no, I, I, I really don't. Right. Uh, this is such an important time in the history of really the, the world and, and business. I happen to have a set of experiences uh, that, that I think will be helpful uh, and cat in catalyzing for this conversation, and this is the perfect way to start the book. I agree. I agree. So, in the very beginning of the book, you know, you you jump into and talk st start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and um, you ask the question, why you know why is achieving DEI so hard? And, and I must preface this, James, with saying that I you know I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of speaking and I speak to businesses all around the country. Uh, these are associations, industry groups, you know, manufacturing, but the most boring industries in the world, you know, from, from packaging people to metal fabricators to construction groups to whatever, okay? It, they, they are wombs of, you know, 150 to 300 middle-aged white men. And if you ask these owners and senior managers of these companies about DEI, they all say that they, you know, it, it's part of a strategy, it's part of their objectives, they want DEI, they want, you know, they want to have more diversity in their companies, but they all say it's very hard. Um, why do they say that? Why is achieving true DEI so hard, in your opinion? Well, I, th I think it's hard or it's easy. Uh, right. the, the, you know, kind of the, the foundational point that we make really throughout the book is this work has to be about culture. You can't separate any racist leadership or DEI from the work of culture. And if you're the CEO, she can't 
delegate that work. So mm -hmm. the first premise of this book is the leaders that sit in those rooms that you're in, they've got to take ownership and leadership of this work. They've got to model this work from their seats, but it doesn't really stop there. Uh, we've got to step back and analytically kind of audit the cultures uh, inside our companies from the perspective of every system that touches people in an organization. And we've got to work hard to unbiased every one of those systems that touch humans from the hiring systems to how we promote people to how we onboard people that are new to the company to how promotions happen to how uh, critical assignments uh, and the compositions of those teams get formulated to how we're all incentivized to do our work right makes sense it makes sense now i get i, I often hear the, the same question being asked by these same leaders over and over again. It's, it's a question that you literally say in the beginning of your book that's actually the wrong question to ask. And the question is, how do you square DEI with the need to hire whoever seems to be the most qualified and capable candidate for the job? Um, why do you say that that's the wrong question to ask? Yeah, and, and sometimes the most qualified question gets asked uh, from the context of we're find, trying to find culture fits. Mm. Uh, and that's definitely the wrong question. Uh, the question that I ask differently is I want people that are going to be additive to my culture and company. So that's fundamentally what I'm looking for is people that can add to the, the richness and capability and experience of the company. And when you ask that different question, it takes you down a different path. You're evaluating people maybe, you know, from a different perspective. Got it. Um, you write as well about high potential employees and leaders. And you say that hiring high potential people can be potentially biased. Can you, first of all, define what you mean by high potential and then Tell me why you think that would be potentially biased. Yeah, and if we think about high potential, and I think the 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 exact example I share is really one of my own, and I make the point that I've never been promoted to the next job, and I've had lots of promotions. I had thirteen different uh, jobs and promotions during my time at Nestle Purina, as an example. Mm -hmm. And the point uh, that I try to make is oftentimes. Uh, black executives or, you know, uh, folks from underrepresented communities have to prove it again and prove it again and prove it again. And that's driven by when we're looking at people's potential, we look for people that uh, have similar backgrounds, similar approaches to thinking about a business, maybe from similar schools. And that excludes uh, folks like me very often that are uh, you know, kind of first generation college graduates, you know, not a part of the networks, uh, you know, from a business uh, perspective, might have even different hobbies. Golf was pretty prevalent really throughout my career. And a lot of the incremental FaceTime that folks would have uh, would be you know, on the on the golf course is not a sport I grew up playing, uh, but even the the rituals inside of companies on how things get done 
work to exclude, uh, you know, some folks from access to leadership and opportunities. You know, it, it tell me if this if this makes sense. And what I'm getting, what you're saying is, if you have a you have a white guy that's Ivy League, you know, educated and maybe spend time on some Wall Street firms or has that sort of corporate, you know, you know, credentials, um, you automatically think this person is a high potential person. Um, and when you compare them to, say, a black guy that was did not go to the Ivy League or maybe doesn't have a college education, could be just as qualified, just as smart, but because they wouldn't necessarily be considered to be a high potential because he doesn't look like the guy that you would expect to be successful in another role that's where the bias comes in is that it, it does that? and one other example we share in the book and i was talking to a, a black female executive uh last week big technology company and she had never heard anybody describe this in the way i described it and as i looked at some of the moves that i make i would come into a new job and I would literally have to prove why I belonged in the room. And I don't know yeah. if you remember this from the book, where literally I would have to start from zero and try to get to 90. Yeah. The the same white guy would start at 100. And yeah. all he had to do is figure out how not to lose 10 points. And then it's on to the next thing. Yeah. But I've, I, I've firstly got to try to prove why I actually belong in the same room. And some of this is a part of the unconscious bias and people don't even realize that that's how they're evaluating, uh, you know, candidates very, very differently. The other thing that happens is all the black or brown candidates or women in, in some uh, companies have to be great. They have to be super achievers. So th there is no room for the average performing uh, candidate that comes from a different background. Right. You write about when you first became CEO of Jamba Juice, um, how you did like an, an audit of the company culture. And I think that you know, the story that you told is so valuable to anybody running a company. And by the way, my audience, you know, mainly small and mid-sized companies, you know, with some larger companies mixed in, but tell me the story about how you audited the company culture at Jamba Juice, what, what you did and why it was important. Yeah, for me, oh, across the really the first uh, 100 days or so, I wanted to hear from all the key stakeholders in the organization to figure out what was working, uh, what wasn't working so well, and then what were some of the ideas on how we might improve. So I, uh, you, know, you know, literally first day on the job, I meet with, uh, the hundred plus employees that were in our support center uh, headquarter for Jamba and kicked off a session. And so that there was uh, anonymity to the feedback, I passed out a card and I, uh, at the end of the discussion, you know, I shared a bit about my background and my family and, sure. you know, my expectations as CEO when I, uh, you know, had a hundred plus responses on, you know, here are the one to three things I'd like to see James uh, do as CEO. Here are the things that are really working well that I'd love for us to preserve. And then here are a couple ideas uh, that might be helpful as we try to move the company ahead. And just the richness of that input from uh, the associate base inside the company was important. But I, I repeated that with each board member in one-on-ones. 
I worked with our uh, top and key suppliers to get feedback. Jamba was a public company. I wanted to also hear from the analysts that evaluated uh, the, the company and really bake that all into um, you know, how we laid out the multi-year strategy to transform the company. And again, uh, people and culture of the organization was really foundational to how we uh, uh, did the turnaround and transformation at Jamba. Right. And what did you find? I mean, you, you, what, you know, this was done with an objective of improving DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. What, what did you find there? And then what did you do to improve it? Yes, I'd make a couple points. I mean, the, 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 the objective of that audit was really to improve the performance of the company. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the opportunity to leverage DEI was a byproduct of uh, the, the rigorous analysis to strengthen the culture, um, you know, add to uh, the composition of the company differently to unlock talent that I found in the organization that might have come from more diverse or different backgrounds. Okay. Uh, um, and I think the, 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 the biggest lessons, uh, you, you know, which wouldn't be a shock to uh, your readers is that we uh, weren't as diverse as we needed to be. Uh, given our consumer base, especially in the leadership ranks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we weren't as diverse as we needed to be in the boardroom. Uh, there were, you know, so if you think about our consumer base, it would have been, uh, you know, 60% plus women. We had an all-male board. Hmm. Uh, you know, so any companies uh, hmm. that really don't bring the perspective of their key uh, targeted consumers, that's going to be, be a miss, you know, from the starting point. Sure. Uh, as, as just one observation, uh, we had a fall off of uh, women and people of color as you moved up through the executive ranks of right. the company. And those were some opportunities to really leverage just fantastic talent that was present in the company that was looking for opportunities to grow that we hadn't previously. Um, you, you give some thoughts, which I'd like you to share here about chief diversity officers. Many companies are hiring chief diversity officers. Um, you say that it, the CEO has to be in charge of DEI. Does that mean that you should not have a chief diversity officer in your company? No, I'm making a, a, a really different point. The, the, the foundational point is the, the chief executive can't delegate uh, this work and walk away from it. And many of the companies that I see adding chief diversity officers, they do so in many cases after a crisis. So it's a job that has relatively high turnover. If you, if you step back and just look at the appointments of chief diversity officers, the shelf life is probably less than two years. Uh, in many cases, is following an incident in the in the company, uh, and it's a you know more risk mitigating. Uh, I view it in some cases almost a diversion, you know, from what, what really needs to happen. Where I think chief diversity officers really work is when they're integrated uh, into the strategy, the core strategy of the company, 
they've got a portfolio where they can really have an impact in the organization. I love it when, especially in larger companies, when that chief diversity officer uh, sits on the executive team of the CEO, um, you know, because they have a seat at the table, a voice, and they have an opportunity to really impact uh, the, the the company in a material way. And I'll give a couple of examples. Yeah, I sit on the board of a retailer, Snook Supermarkets, um, and that CEO, Todd Snook, uh, you know, like many leaders, uh, w was shocked by the uh, murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning and all the conversation that happened. Uh, he, um, you know, committed probably six months before that, he added a chief diversity officer uh, at the company. But post the George Floyd murder, he, you know, pulled me in as a board member, said, James, I really want your help and attention around this work. And what I watched him do, and we've been doing this now for two years, he he visits with the chief diversity officer, the chief people officer, and one line executive on a weekly basis on the on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, every every single week, two full years, and then has me to come in as a board member. He uh, knows that I have experience in the area. He knew I was uh, working on this book and, and had lots of examples. But on a monthly basis, I'm in a conversation with diversity, uh, on diversity with the CEO on a monthly basis. And he's put himself in a place where he's learning and growing really across the time. And it's positioning him to make better calls inside his company. Um, so that's the point I make when I say you can't delegate this work. He's one example. Uh, an example of just a fantastic uh, DEI executive uh, is Libra Clemens at Twilio. Uh, that's not in the book. You know, I continue to kind of update my knowledge yeah. on the space, yeah. but she's published fantastic reports on anti-racist uh, leadership, um, you know, sits on the executive team uh, with the CEO at Twilio and has published fantastic work. And I share that so that your readers can, you know, go to other examples. And we try to really do that throughout the book so that there are examples of big companies, smaller companies, technology companies, you know, restaurant or retail companies. A um, couple of hard questions here that just come to mind. Um, I mean, you know, your book is about being an anti-racist leader. Um, you know, clearly there are a lot of companies that you've come across that are, you don't have diversity, equity, and inclusion for whatever reason. Um, like you said, it could be an all board of white men or senior, you know, senior executives are mostly you know, men and again, white. Um, that, does that mean that a company or their leadership is, is necessarily racist in your opinion, because they don't have that diversity or is it something else? I, mean, I, I just think there's a, there's certainly a blind spot in the world that we live in. I think we're going to have stakeholder groups. Gene, we talked about our millennial children. Yeah. Uh, th th there is a next generation that has grown up in a more multicultural world. Yes. That's their expectation. That's who we're going to be leading in the in, in the workforce. 
uh, and we're actually doing harm to our business businesses. Let's call it a blind spot. You know, if we'd like, you you can call it a stasis that relates to the uh, just the status quo. And I like things the way uh, that they are, but it's it's certainly a missing. Uh, right. You know, from where I sit, uh, it's a really clear kind of missed opportunity, and the best place to start uh, change is at the executive level because people that are going to be attracted to uh, companies moving forward, you know, as we think about the future of work and the great resignation that has happened, they're going to want to see that there's an opportunity for people like them inside our companies. Which brings me to my next question is, um, you know, I, to me, we, we are talking about our kids as well. And they're, they're part of that millennial generation and, and it is more diverse. And sometimes I, I feel like James, like it's just, it's a generational issue. Like, like, these things are improving over time where, you know, now, it, I mean, you have to admit if, if somebody is committed to building a more diverse workforce, there were just, there are less black college graduates. You know, there, there are less qualified, at least from a technical and educational standpoint, say, you know, black candidates for jobs than whites. And yet that, that number is improving a lot. It's, it's getting better. And I, and I just sometimes think that like, well, when our kids eventually move into, as they get older, their generation gets older and becomes part of management, that that population of black and brown and female and different genders and all that, that that's going to improve over time. It, it's, it's almost like a natural transition. Um, what, what yeah, do I don't know if I that? agree with the point. I don't <laughs> know if I agree with the point that there are less that's potential candidates. I think uh, the point that I'd make is we've got to look different places. So if we think about, and many of the companies that are doing this work are focused on historically black colleges and universities. And the way I think about more or less is if you just look at the the, the uh, representation of the population that we're pulling from. And I'll give an example of a, a board that I sat on at the time, uh, Medallia, that CEO, and they're in the technology industry, had uh, 1% representation of Blacks at Medallia. He right. made a personal commitment to move the representation from 1% to 13% over four years. And what I can report to your audience is that in less than two years, he was able to move that number from 1% uh, to uh, north of 7% on the way to 13%. Okay. So it's a uh, uh, it's a will versus uh, uh, you know kind of a, a a lack of talent. You might have to look in different places, but I'll tell you the motivating factor is the CEO's Leslie Stretch, and he and his leadership team held themselves accountable uh, from an equity compensation perspective. And you and I both know in uh, the tech world, most of my compensation is equity, and yep. once that was at risk and the target was clear, uh, make no mistake, they'll get to those numbers and that team will get compensated. And I think more people that take that spirit uh, towards this work, uh, you know, will make significant progress. But we've got, we've got to look at different pools uh, to access more diverse candidates. Uh, this new hybrid at work world that we live in gives us all opportunities. So if the company is in Boise, Idaho, or uh, 
Salt Lake City, Utah, you might say, well, hey, James, my population is a, a, a lot less diverse than some other places. But if you've got a national consumer base uh, and you've got folks that are working in a hybrid fashion or virtually, you also have access to places like Detroit and Atlanta and DC, and there are more innovative solutions that I'm watching companies make to access talent in different places. So I wanna, I wanna talk about the actual playbook that you recommend for changing the culture in your company. But before I do, to, to implement that playbook, everything that you have in this, the, the, it's the seven steps that you give. Um, they're they're hard, and I before we get into that, I, I one final hard question for you is sure, you know, in in the wake of the of the Floyd killing, um, in the wake of all this awareness for more diversity and and you know and and the bias that's out there, sometimes again I'm just I'm telling you for somebody who covers business, you know, I write sure. about business, I see a lot of companies just making you know gestures. For, for more PR purposes than actual, sure. than actually doing the hard work. Cause, cause I just asked you before about like, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's not as many, you know, black college graduates or there's not whatever. And your response was rightfully so. Yeah. They're out there if you want to work hard to find them. And even when you find people, it doesn't, if you're, if you're really, if you're really motivated to change your culture, you can, you can provide the additional training to people. You can get them up to, if you really want to do it, you can. I just feel like a lot of companies that I see, um, they they you know they they say they're going to do this. Maybe they contribute a bunch of money to some minority, you know, uh, nonprofit. You know what I mean? Or they sure. issue their statement that they don't follow through. I'm just curious. Before we get into this seven steps, I mean, do do you feel the same way? Do you feel like there's like you know a lot of empty gestures being made rather than actual commitment by companies in this country to really make, you know, make changes to their culture? Yeah, I think there's a couple of points. I, I, I would agree with, uh, you know, so if I go back to 2020, there's a couple hundred of the largest, you know, companies in America or globally that made anti-racist statements. Of course. That, that we could all go Google and publish and they made commitments to donate money. Right. One of the things that I think if we went back and audited what actually happened, uh, probably a fraction of the money that was committed has really made it to places that matter to kind of change right. uh, our communities or change the face of our companies. Or, or if we just looked at just the results of the, the, the boards in those companies or the executive teams, you might see little or limited uh, progress. The best leaders view this as an opportunity to strengthen their companies and culture, and they're going to put in the work like Todd Snook that, that I talked about. Um, you know, I, I work with another CEO at Bay Club. It's a lifestyle fitness company. He also, around that same time, made a, a significant commitment of time. He appointed his first uh, diversity officers, a husband and wife team to lead the work and they took themselves the company on a learning journey they've made commitments and i also meet with that uh set of leaders on a monthly basis so this is a uh, it's a commitment the work can sometimes be difficult but i think the best companies moving forward are going to distinguish themselves as an em employer of choice 
uh, that make the commitment. Um, and it's certainly the right thing to do, but this is uh, to create a better business uh, moving forward. Okay. Um, so let's say, you know, we, we put ourselves in a position with that, you know, we know that this is going to improve our company. We know we're committed to improving diversity in the company. Um, and diversity could be, you know, more black and brown faces or more female faces or, you know, whatever you define that to be. Um, you um, offer seven steps, like a playbook for changing the culture in your company. And I don't want to put you on the spot to like, I don't know if you can rattle them all off in your, you know, off in your, but I've got them here. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna list them off, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about them because sure. as just some advice to someone that, that's that's watching this to myself, I have ten employees, so we're very small. But to sure. somebody that does want to make that commitment, so you say to actively listen and learn, you say to enlist and align across the senior leadership team, you say to audit the culture. We talked a little bit about that before. What you did at Jamba Juice, document what you're doing now, establish benchmarks build action learning teams or task forces and develop an action plan. So let's go back over those seven steps. Talk, talk to me a little bit. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring it to life in this way. And really kind of the fundamental uh, point is uh, the chief executive, she's got to lead okay. this, this work. Um, we've, we, we've, we've got to almost like an archeologist got to document what we do. We've got to look at, what are our rituals? What are our, uh, what are all the systems that touch people? And this is where the system and process part of the work that has to happen uh, comes in. Uh, you know, one of the things that I pull into this idea around, you know, kind of activating change around action learning, the fundamental place to drive this work is through the middle management of the company. Yeah. That's, that's the place where the change typically stalls in most most companies. You call them catalysts, catalysts for change or your middle managers, right? Yeah, and you, you really have to make sure that group of leaders, one, you have to have them participate if there is a strike team or an action team helping you audit the culture and craft kind of the strategy for the company the most critical place to make sure that we've got the right tools, resources, and training is the middle management of an organization. And I give an example of a you know large distribution company that might have 20,000 employees, but they've got a couple hundred middle managers uh, that they really need to focus on uh, giving the right tools and the right incentives. Because the reality is most of us experience the companies that we work for through our immediate supervisors or the middle management of an organization. And really the final point around keeping score is everything in business that matters. We measure it. Yes. And we keep score in some routine fashions, whether it's monthly or quarterly or annually or all of those. Uh, and then we incent people to do it. Uh, and you know, having some way to tie incentives to getting this work done by critical leaders in an organization is essential. Um, you do talk about the metrics for DEI. Can, can you dig a little bit deeper down into that? Like what, if I am following those seven steps in the playbook and I, and I do want to see progress and results, can you, can you 
share some specific metrics that we might want to be tracking that will tell us if we're getting anything done? Yeah, I think you start where you are. Uh, you know, so the a part of the auditing is just understanding the overall composition of the demographics of your organization uh, in total. Uh, one of the places where there is a little bit of kabuki theater, uh, many organizations uh, are going to be pretty diverse. Uh, if I take the restaurant industry, which I came out of, you're right. going to have a really diverse workforce in uh, the the frontline workforce. Two thirds of the uh, employees are going to be women or people of color in the restaurant industry. As you move up through the leadership levels, uh, that diversity disappears precipitously. Uh, so the, a bit of the uh, theater that I've seen is people take the aggregate numbers and uh, try to portray a more diverse uh, workforce. But as you move into executive and senior levels of the organization, they become significantly less diverse and almost non-existent into uh, the boardroom. So just the demographics of the organization in lots of different ways is important. And that's something that you measure over time. I gave the Snook Supermarket example. They've got targets uh, for uh, how they want to see improvement. And that's one of the things that the CEO holds his team accountable to uh, over time. There are qualitative measures around training and exposure. So that is more just activity based. We're going to deploy this set of training on this timing. Um, there is work around our supplier basis. So supplier diversity in the ecosystem uh, that we build to create a more inclusive culture includes uh, the diversity of our suppliers from professional services companies that provide services to our company uh, to you know hard goods if I'm in a uh, if I'm procuring kind of hard uh, product goods so that's another place uh, but it's going to be customized by the organization uh, I always advise people to fit it to their overall business strategy but you know measure it and put it in the MBOs or KPIs of the organization and measure it like you measure everything else that's important. We talk about measurement and uh, and this is kind of near and dear to me, my heart. I'm a, I'm a CPA um, and I'm, I'm thinking of a client of mine that I have actually in Trenton, New Jersey. It's about, they have about 150 employees, uh, three brothers run the company, uh, three white guys, middle-aged white guys. And they, um, they, everything they do, James, is based on ROI. You know what I mean? Like sure. they, they will spend, you know, a quarter of a million dollars on a piece of equipment because they know once they get that up and running in 30 days, it's going to churn out a, you know, a number of sheets of material that's going to make them such and such money over the next three years. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what they sure. drive. So for me to go and say, Hey, you've got to, uh, you know, you've, you, you've got to improve your DEI because it's, it's good for the business. They're going to come back and say to me, say, all right, I mean, that sounds intangibly good, but, you know, what, why should we make this effort in the sense of like, what, you know, show me the money, you know, like what is the, what's the return on investment for doing something like this? You know, if I want to hire a guy to run this piece of equipment, 
they're going to tell me, I don't care if he's black or green or blue. I just want to make sure he's qualified to do it so I can make money off him and make money off of this job. Do you know what I mean? So what do I, what do I say to a client like that? In, other, in, in the sense of, we were talking about metrics, you know, and sure. benchmarks. How do you, is there any way to quantitatively measure the ROI of having a diverse workforce? Yeah, there there are lots of studies that 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 prove um, that having a more diverse w- workforce, uh, you know, the business case has been made m- many many uh, years ago. The very specific point in this case that I'd make is uh, the the clients that we're selling into increasingly are more diverse. If you're doing any work with government organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to want to understand the makeup and composition of your organization. Uh, as we think about just the change in demographics and the challenges that almost everybody's having with their workforce, mm-hmm. it's just smart business to look different places so that you're not one of those organizations uh, that can't find employees to fill critical jobs. Most of the industries that I sit in, we're all challenged. You know, from retail um, to restaurants, you know, challenge to have an appropriate set of uh, employees, and it's just it's just good business. It is. It's not just that you you actually bring up a really good point because I'm thinking again of this client of mine. They have some large corporate customers, and they also do some work for the government. And they they are and will be asked even more about the demographic makeup of their workforce uh, because these corporate customers have their own goals to work with suppliers. Sure. And a part of your goals is going to be your supply chain. Yeah, that's right. And you mentioned this in the book about making sure that you, your own supply chain is diverse. But, you know, if, if I'm talking to this client of mine, I can say, guys, you talk about ROI, you could be missing out on projects and jobs from some of these larger customers sure. who may have an issue because you, your company is not, you know, racially diverse enough. And that, to, I think that that argument itself could hit very well home for business. It's, 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 this is just good business. I yeah. mean, we we live in a pretty diverse uh, country. They're based in New Jersey. Yeah, uh, that's going to be a pretty diverse state. I'd argue it won't be hard to find True. diverse talent in New Jersey. True, you are right. All right, a couple more questions for you, and then I'll let you go. This is a, it's such an enlightening conversation. Um. You, you know, you, you, near the end of the book, you, you have a checklist for CEOs, you know, and which is really, to me, like one of the most important sections of the book. And, and again, I'm not, I don't want to give away everything. I want people to buy this book and read it. We go sure. into a lot more detail of it, but just a couple of things on this checklist. I just had to ask you some questions about, like, for example, one of the things that you, you say is to develop your personal strategy and style for discussing race, racism, and diversity, including the terminology you're going to use. Okay. I'm thinking again about this client of mine in, in New Jersey. I don't think I would want those guys talking about race and racism and diversity in their own personal style. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question is like, would you recommend hiring a consultant or getting some outside advice to help you formulate what that messaging should be? <laughs> yeah, I think the, the main point that I'd make is, um, we've all got to show a little bit of grace around this topic. And I think what you'll find um, in, in the book is we try to give people just lots of different examples to uh, tackle what is a difficult subject. And the best leaders that I've seen do this work 
they, they, they try to listen more than they talk. They try to understand other people's stories, but they also share their stories looking for places where there might be some commonality. Um, and I just think, you know, kind of meeting, especially for the CEOs, this is a place where the CEOs and the key executives won't have all the answers they take themselves on kind of a learning journey. I share examples in the book uh, where there are CEOs that pick a book and they have everybody in the organization read the same book and they have a conversation that might be facilitated on that book. Yeah. I've got a client that I'm uh, working with in two weeks. There is a program called Amend uh, that has six series and they're having the whole organization, this is the larger technology company, everybody's gonna watch over six weeks that program. And then they're having honest discussions. They're using one of uh, their resource groups. So the black resource group in this case made that recommendation. They've got other resource groups that relate to women and the LGBT LGBTQIA community that might lead the next learning session so I think there are lots of different ways to tackle this work, but I think we've all got to have open, you know, open hearts and kind of open minds and just know that nobody's going to have all the answers. The language around this work is going to continue to change right. over time. Um, and we've just got to get started where we are. Final question is, and again, still on that checklist, um, you also recommend that a CEO handpicks handpicks a core group of executives, HR managers, middle-level managers to be those catalysts for change. And I'm wondering if you can offer any advice as to what we should be looking for in those people. I think there's a couple things. For me, I would try to make sure this action learning team or catalyst group is maybe more diverse than our companies and comes from lots of different backgrounds and perspectives. Um, that you have picked different levels in the organization to really make sure uh, that there is a voice and some representation from the middle management of the organization, someone that can be a part of that group that can really tell you how things work and don't work inside the organization. That voice will be critically uh, important. And, uh, you know, for me, finally, people that have the capacity to really grow and kind of think about uh, our companies on more an enterprise level, kind of pulling them out of a functional area and can really help us, you know, create a better culture and a better company. The book is called Anti-Racist Leadership, How to Transform Corporate Culture in a Race-Conscious World. I have been speaking with James White. He is one of the authors. He co-authored this book with his daughter, Crystal White. Uh, James, uh, great conversation, great book. Highly recommends that everyone purchases it. Uh, any final thoughts before I let you go? And by the way, uh, we'll say goodbye, but don't don't sign off yet because I want to say goodbye to you personally after the recording stops. Sure. Gene, um, this has been fantastic. Uh, this is really, really important work. Uh, we actually believe anti-racist leadership uh, is going to be a key uh, capability as we think about the future of work, uh, social items, and getting this right has never been more important as uh, companies big and small are thinking about 
uh, you know, topics like ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And we think any racist leadership can help spark uh, the discussion. And there's a, a, a lot of uh, really actionable material in the book. That is great. You can get the book on Amazon and any other place that sell great books like this. And James, is there any specific place we can follow you or find you online? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and feel free to reach out. Uh, this is a you know passion work uh, for me, and I'm always willing to enter the discussion to really help companies and leaders uh, advance uh, their work in this area. I will reach out to you and connect on LinkedIn myself. Uh, James, thank you so much. That was, uh, it was just like I said, it was great speaking with you. Everyone, you've been watching another episode of Biz Books where we interview great and smart authors of great business books. Thank you so much for watching and listening. My name is Gene Marks. We'll be back in another two weeks with another great author talking about another great book.